Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, Brian, what have you done now? Hi, everybody. This is Bob Gale, co-creator of Back to the Future, and you're listening to Brad Gilmore. Oh, Brian, what have you done now? Doc! 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 Okay, relax, Doc. It's me. It's me. It's Martin. Just sent you back to the future. Yeah. Oh, I know you did send me back to the future, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. Great. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it some style? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Future, the podcast, the only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time. Sitting here in my um, yet-to-be-completed studio, me and my fiance bought a house. There is a guest bedroom that I said, this could be, this could be the studio. So um, right now it looks a mess, but I'm sitting here. We're here in Back to the Future, the podcast season eight. We are less than a month away from the release of the paperback edition of Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. A lot of um, updates that I wanted to make, and then there's a whole new chapter. The thing about the book writing process is, because I'm going to be completely transparent here, there was a couple errors in the book of things that, just, I just missed, right? I just missed. And I, when I worked on this book, had like literally zero help. There wasn't a, um, a, a, a co-writer, a ghost writer. I wasn't working on it with any other person except for me and my own brain and my laptop. So things are going to get by you whenever you read something 18 times. And to be quite frank, when you go through that copy edit process, which is the last process you go in in the book, is you send it off to the publisher, they send it back, and they say, look, here's our edit of it. You go through and read everything. By that time, you've worked on this manuscript for 8 to 12 months, and you're sick of it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you go through it, and I don't know. Okay. This is the best way I can explain it. Do you know when, like, say you make a commute to work every day, you travel the same, same route, same highway, same side roads, same feeders, same all that, same stoplights, stop signs. You know every pebble that's on the road on your way to and from work, okay? When you do that so many times, you kind of just become blind to everything else that's around you. And you get that highway hypnosis to where all of a sudden you show up at your home and you're like, I don't even remember how I got here, right? Because your brain's on autopilot. It's similar when, when you go through the final process of the book is you've read and reread and read and looked at and edited and typed and thought about and prayed on every word of this book 
for such a long time that it's almost like the errors are hidden in plain sight. That's the best way I can describe it. So, um, so when I had the back from the future book come out, I had a couple of friends be like, Hey, there's like a little you know error here. Oh, you, you said this when you probably should have said that. So, um, I was, you know, a little let down by that, but there's nothing I could do. I was working out by myself. So then I reached out to a few people and I just want to acknowledge them real quick here. And then we're going to get into the podcast for the day. But when I went back to the publisher and said, hey, I want to fix these things. And they said, hey, that's great because we want to do a paperback edition. We'll fix whatever little errors you have. We'll add a new chapter and then we'll put it on paperback. So I want to acknowledge a couple people. I want to acknowledge um, first and foremost, my man, Eric Tate. Eric Tate, of course, is the uh, curator of Collect BTTF on Instagram and Twitter and all those great places. And um, he went through the book, the manuscript again, and, and looked for little errors and read over the, the new material and just helped out here and there. And um, I just want to give a big shout out to Eric Tate, of course. And then um, I got to give a big shout out to Philip Schneider, who's a longtime listener of the podcast. And... Um, Philip helped me, this is actually about a year ago, um, look at the initial edit of the uh, Back from the Future book, and he, uh, he, he really helped out a lot. He, Philip, went through and looked at all the, the historical accuracies of the book and um, wanted to make sure that if, if there was like a, like a date that wasn't exactly right, um, or if I misremembered something, uh, he went through and just researched, double-checked everything. Also want to give a big shout-out to Aaron Peck. Aaron Peck is a guy who I had no idea who he was, never heard of him. And <laughs> this is funny. I actually saw a, a, a user review of my book on some website where he talked about some of the grammatical and punctuation errors in the book. And um, he was like, this book was great. Just the errors drove me a little crazy sometimes. And, you know, I, I, I talked to an author friend of mine, and he said that every book has at least 20 errors in it. Every book. Um, even presidential memoirs have errors, right? I was just listening to John Moxley, who's a, a wrestler for All Elite Wrestling, AEW's AEW World Champion. He wrestled in WWE as Dean Ambrose. He was talking to Chris Jericho, a friend of the show, friend of the podcast, and Jericho and he were talking about publishing a book, and Moxley just released his new book, and he found an error or two in it, and it drove him crazy. So they're going to happen. But um, Aaron wrote this little review, and I found Aaron on social and reached out to him and said, hey, I'm cleaning up the book for a re-release. You want to help? <laughs> and he said, sure. So Aaron went through and, and did everything that he did. So shout out to those three men. And then um, shout out to Amber Coates. Amber Coates helped me transcribe some of the interviews that are going to be in the new chapter of uh, the book of Back from the Future. So big shout out to all those people. Much love, much respect. And now we can move on into today's podcast. What I wanted to do, I was um, looking online and I found this article on cinemablend.com. And it's about Back to the Future Part 2. And the name of the article is Back to the Future 2, ten, and they should say Part 2. Ten major questions we're still asking. It's by a guy named Mike Reyes. It came out a year ago. And I just read this 
for the first time this morning. And uh, excuse me, I had to take a little, a little sip there. Reading through it this morning, and uh, this is these were ten questions that they had. And I thought, you know what? Let's read these on the podcast and let's let's talk through these. So let's read up this this first part of the article. It says. Many a sci-fi fan traced their basic understanding of time travel to the Back to the Future trilogy facts with a keen eye of how cause and effect can alter a timeline. There's bound to be questions hiding in plain sight, especially in the three legendary films that saw Michael J. Fox's Marty McFly and Christopher Lloyd's Dr. Emmett L. Brown ponder the biggest issues one could expect to run into. Tons of people have questioned the events of Back to the Future through such a critical lens, but not many have turned that sort of eye to its sequels. This is true as well. Today, or whenever in the space-time continuing you're reading this feature, a year after it was published, we're about to take a look at the events of Back to the Future 2 and ask some of the major questions we have after watching the movie again. With this legendary sequel fresh in our minds, it's these issues that we're still scratching our heads over with the second in the series of serialized shenanigans. By the way, Mike Reyes, huge fan of your alliteration. I'm very pro-alliteration, as everybody knows. Okay, first question. Let's talk about this, Pinheads. How does Biff Tannen know how to operate the DeLorean? While Doc Brown's DeLorean time machine isn't the most complicated piece of technology, there's still a bit of a process that goes into putting that baby into gear for time travel. Between needing to know how to enter the date on the keypad to requiring knowledge of how to engage both the hover converter and revving things up to 88 miles per hour, you really need to be familiar with how to operate this time machine. Before you go anywhere, before you go anywhere. So how did old Biff Tannen simply step into the DeLorean, take it to 1955 to change the future and come back to 2015 with barely a thought? Okay, this is a great question. Let's think about it. I'll address the hover thing first because if you look in 2015 Hill Valley, hover conversions are easily accessible. They can install them in any car. And I'm sure there's a uniformity to that, similar to an automatic or manual transmission. There's really only one way to operate one of those transmissions, right? Um, you put it in gear and go. I'm sure it's a similarity in Hill Valley with the hover conversion. It's probably a uniform thing. Everyone knows how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, you're silly. Even an old man. Because even Biff, old Biff Tannen knew how to thumb 100 bucks, knew how to call a taxi, all these things, right? Okay. So that part I don't really care too much about. Now, the inner workings of the DeLorean. Okay, you can look at this a few ways. Biff, this version of Biff, did see a DeLorean time machine before. And we do not know what old Biff Tannen did between 1985 and 2015 as far as any kind of recon on Doc Brown. Now, when he sees the time machine in 2015, he says, Flying DeLorean, haven't seen that in 20 years. And then he's like, so Doc Brown invented a time machine. It's when he's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. If you look at the um, the time circuits, it looks pretty s- simple as far as inputting where you are, where you're uh, going, and where you've been, right? So I think Biff could even figure that out. Type in the numerical date and time you want to arrive in the past or whatever. The only other thing I can think of, so that so so that addresses the hover conversion, that addresses 
how he inputted the time. I think those two things are pretty self-explanatory. The other part of getting to 88, making sure the time circuits are on, how could he have known? I don't think he could have. But let's think about it if we got into it. We knew this was a time machine. We weren't sure how it operated. We figured out, okay, this is where you put the data in. This is where I'm going to go. It's a car. So you're assuming it needs to be in motion. This is just common logic. You're assuming it needs to be in, in motion in order to do what it's supposed to do. Cars have moving parts. They, they rev, they move, the pistons fire, things of this nature, when you hit gas and all that stuff. So if I saw that time machine, I would think, okay, it's a car. I have to drive it. And our programming as human beings isn't to, well, when, this, when we want this to work, we want it to go slow. <laughs> it's, it needs to go fast enough to cause some sort of it thing. So I would just assume that Biff probably got in it, got a, a clean runway of sky, and said, let me just put the pedal to this metal in the sun gun and see where it goes. And uh, luckily, it hit 88, and he figured it out. And he just probably repeated it to come back. I, I think that we're giving him a lot in that, but I don't, I don't think that any of those were shocking. Next question. Could Biff have stayed a good person if Doc never showed up again? The words Biff Tannen and a nice guy never seem to be good bedfellows, but by the end of Back to the Future, a humbled Biff, played by Tom Wilson, who, by the way, I was trying to bid on some of those Tom Wilson auctions on eBay. They were just too rich for my blood. Operates an auto detailing service. We're reminded of this fact at the beginning of Back to the Future Part 2, just as Biff sees Doc and his DeLorean show up to whisk Marty and Jennifer into 2015. It's only because of Biff Tannen remembering this event in 2015 that the central conflict in the sequel kicks off, which has us wondering, would Biff have remained meek and mild if Doc had either stayed home or was a bit more discreet in his time-traveling ways? Well, hmm... Hmm. Biff does say, what the hell is going on here when he sees that? But that didn't indicate that he was turning evil, right? That was just Biff being like, what the hell is going on here? So I don't think that he changed into an evil person in that timeline of 1985. Now, in the alternate 1985, of course he was an evil person, but things changed in the uh, past, which made him that way, not in the present of 1985. So Biff would have remained a nice guy no matter what. I, I, I don't really buy into that one. Sorry, uh, what's his name? Mike Reyes. Okay, next one. What was Marty Sr. going to do that ended himself? ended up getting himself fired? In Back to the Future 2, both Marty McFly and his son are primed to make horrific decisions that will crash their lives into a mountain of consequences. With Marty Jr. being enticed by Griff and Marty Sr. Uh, finding his co-worker Needles, played by Flea, as his tempter, these decisions would have landed the son in jail and the father in the unemployment line. While the son was spared from a particularly nasty rap for theft, Marty Sr. did, did the thing, got himself terminated. But what exactly was the business proposition that was pro that promised a killer payout. Hmm. 
There's no way of really answering that, right? That's a question for Gail and Zemeckis. There's no way you can really answer that. We could have pondered it. Now, it seemed like some sort of embezzlement kind of thing, but that would have been a crime. It would have gotten you more than just fired. I don't know what it could have been, to be honest with you. Is anybody out there, any of you pinheads have an idea? If you do, tweet me at Brad Gilmore. Next one. Would Marty Jr. have recognized Doc? Marty McFly Jr. was supposed to be intercepted by Doc Brown in 2015 in Back to the Future Part 2, but as we see in the final chain events, this never happened, which might have been a good thing because if the two of them met, what would have happened? Would Marty Jr. have recognized Doc Brown from all the stories his father would have more than likely told him? Imagine what the dinner table would have been like later that night when Marty's kid is asking about that wild-eyed scientist he used to tell stories about. Hmm. I'm sure at some point during Marty Jr.'s adolescence, the name Doc Brown was mentioned by his father. But it's not like today where you have this multitude of pictures just stored on your phone, right? And I say that because it's like, oh, you want to see my grandnephew? Here, let me show you on my phone. Pictures were different back in the day. I don't think that Marty really had too many pictures with Doc other than the iconic one in front of the clock tower, but that hadn't happened technically yet. It had happened, but it hadn't happened yet as far as the linear story of which we're watching. And in the timeline, it really hadn't happened yet, right? Yeah, no, it hadn't because they haven't gone back to 1955 and then the DeLorean gets struck by lightning yet. So we don't know. Marty could have not had any photographical evidence of Doc Brown. And even if he did, what are the chances that Marty Jr. sees Doc Brown, who by this time, let's see, 30 years after 1985, would Doc have been dead? Let's assume he's in his mid-40s at best uh, in 1955, in his 70s and 85. Is there an age on Doc? Do we know this? Hold on. This is something I should know. How old is Doc Brown in Back to the Future? So, okay, we do know this from the games. So, yeah, in 85, he would have been 71. Okay, yeah, exactly. So, he was born 1931, according to the game and a novelization and an animation. Well... Yeah, born in 31. So, in back, and this is according back to the future of the game. In the novelization, it's different. In the animation series, it's different. So, in 1931, he's 17 in the game. He's 11 in the novel. He's 9 in the series. So, in 55, he's either 41, 35, or 33. Let's go with the novelist. No, let's go with the game because that was Bob Gale. So, I'm going to go Bob Gale ages by the game, and it's the most recent incarnation of this so that means in 85 he's in his 70s so he's 71 he's not 101 years old in 2015 so even if marty jr had seen a picture of doc he's not thinking there's a 101 year old man (laughs) in 2015 running around uh who used to be his dad's friend back in the day 
I think that if anything, he's like, oh, it's like a interesting coincidence. This guy reminds me of the guy my dad used to say about. It's kind of the same thing that we talked about in the Calvin Klein paradox last season or the season before last on the show. If you haven't listened to that episode with it's Ryan Parker, go check that out. Why is it okay to bring a hoverboard into the past but not the sports almanac? All the Back to the Future, all of Back to the Future 2's time travel mayhem hinges on Marty McFly's purchase of Gray's Sports Almanac in the hopes of making some easy money on lucrative bets through time. Great idea, by the way. While Doc warns Marty that this sort of thing isn't exactly wise, considering it screws with the space-time continuum, there's an outstanding question that needs to be answered in this specific instance. How does bringing a fully functioning Mattel hoverboard back from 2015, excuse me, I've been moving stuff, make any more sense? Surely a completed piece of tech from the future would screw the timeline just as much as some ill-gotten wealth, right? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Because the reason the sports almanac threw everything into a rye wasn't just simply because Marty bought it. Sure, that was the instance that then created all of the chaos, but really it hinged on what? Biff Tannen, old man Biff, getting the sports almanac and then going back to the past with it, right? And, and making all these bets. Now, Who's to say that Marty doesn't go back, make some money, and then become an evil person like Biff? I don't think that it's in his character. I think money's similar to alcohol, right? Um, it brings out who you really are when you have a lot of it. And I don't think Marty was an evil person. I think he wanted to live comfortably. Nothing wrong with that. Um, now, the hoverboard thing. Since Marty knows the ramifications of time travel, and he is aware that... Uh, what the, eventually, what the uh, almanac ends up doing. But um, I think that, because when does he bring it back? So they're in 2015, and they're in Hilldale. Jennifer passes out. They take it, and then they go back to the future, right from there, right? So Marty might have brought it accidentally did was there a purpose there wasn't a purposeful reason that he brought it i'm trying to remember off the top of my head you would think i would know i've seen this movie a billion times wrote a book on it but he doesn't bring it for any particular reason he just happens to have it so i think that marty may have had the cognizant thought of hey i have this hoverboard i'm not supposed to uh, bring this back even though it's already here so let me make sure it doesn't get into the wrong hands perhaps who knows Next question. Did Doc and Marty's trip to 2015 cause Marty's accident in 1985 Prime? Okay, let's read this. This is interesting. Throughout the course of Back to the Future 2 and its sequel, Back to the Future 3, Marty's issues about being called chicken are dealt with through the past, present, and future timelines in the series. And if he and if it wasn't for the lessons he learned, he would have gotten into a music career-ending accident with a Rolls Royce, which, come to think of it, is never mentioned prior to Back to the Future Part 2, which makes us wonder... Did Doc's initial trip to 2015 accidentally put Marty on the road that would have led to a busted hand and a wedding at the Chapel of Love? No, absolutely not. This was always going to happen. The Rolls-Royce thing was always going to happen. Now, we don't hear about it in Back to the Future Part 1, but we also don't hear about Marty being called a chicken in Back to the Future Part 1. 
that's introducing two and three to give Marty some sort of character, more of a character arc. Now, if you listen to my theory about Marty's change that I did on one of the seasons prior, or you listen to my interview with Bob Gale where I ask him the question, what is Marty's change in Back to the Future Part 1? Because every character needs an arc and some sort of completion of their story. The change in Back to the Future Part 1 is he gets over his fear of rejection. The same fear that was inherited through his father. So by proxy of his father getting over it, Marty then, through the space-time continuum and seeing it for his own eyes, gets over his uh, you know, fear of rejection. So we didn't know that Marty had this hothead until Back to the Future Part 2. So I think it was just introduced and we heard about this story. You're not going to hear about every significant event of somebody's life in Back to the Future Part 1. So, um, no. that that Mar- Doc did not cause Marty's accident. And then I think we have a couple more here. Next one. Why is Doc Brown so obsessed with changing the future now? In Back to the Future, Marty tried to prevent Doc Brown's death by giving him a letter about his own future demise. The man swears up and down that he won't read the letter from his young companion, but does it anyway and is spared a horrific death. Could this have turned the scientifically minded, usefully careful, usually careful Doc into a reckless time bandit? The Doc at the beginning of Back to the Future would have never let Marty sniff the future, much less interact with it, and now he's drafting him back to course correct his entire family? Did Marty break Doc? I think that Doc may have realized, hey, okay, I read this letter. Only thing that it did was save my life, (laughs) which is a big deal. And when Doc travels 30 years into the future just to see what's going on, and he sees that Marty's life is now in shambles, and he has an opportunity to save it, I think it's just returning the favor. I don't think Doc Doc is obsessed with changing the future. I think that he's helping his buddy out. No big deal. What was the hard way of dealing with the intruders, according to Biff's thugs? One of Back to the Future 2's funniest gags comes when Biff's thugs uh, were threatened, threatened Marty McFly with the easy way or the hard way. When it comes to subduing him, the easy way, funny enough, is clubbing Marty in the back of the head with a blackjack and shipping him to the good old 27th floor. The more times we hear that line, the more we feel like asking someone what exactly was the hard way and how illegal is it in the world of Biff Tannen's uh, ascent in alternate 1985. I think the hard way was probably just beating the ever-loving hell out of him. Or that wasn't the easy way. I know that there's like, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. Bam! And then you hear the, the easy way. Right now, that could have been telling us that that's the easy way, or that could have been Marty's subconscious thought as he's waking up on the twenty seventh floor of, "God, I should have done this the easy way. <laughs> I should have just gone right upstairs." So, uh, I think that's perspective. What if that line, "the easy way," means that that was the easy way that we saw, or that was Marty's reflecting on, "I should have taken the easy way." The hard way, if that was the easy way, I guess would have been beating the hell out of him. How bad of a kid was Marty in, in alternate 1985? Let's be honest. The entire alternate 1985 scenario from Back to the Future 2 leaves a lot of questions in its wake. While it's only a short segment of the entire film, it doesn't change the fact that the tangent timeline is rich for asking right questions, one of which has to deal with the fact that the alternate Biff mentions the oh so subtly that apparently Marty has a habit of getting kicked out of boarding schools. So how bad of a kid was alternate 1985 in order to get bounced from fancy to fancy school? Well, I don't think that Marty was a bad kid. I think he was a trouble kid. His father was murdered when he's a teen. 
And now his mom is married to the, this evil dude. He's got problems. He's not a bad kid. Terrible way of phrasing that. He's troubled. He's challenged. He has issues he's trying to deal with. Probably doesn't really respect any authority figure, i.e. a teacher. Therefore, he gets kicked out of schools. Easy. Who kills alternate 1985's Biff? Oh, great question. Our last two questions are major ones, especially when it comes to hardcore sci-fi fans. As died in the wool, Back to the Future Part 2 fans will tell you there's an infamous deleted scene where old Biff returns to 2015, only to fade away into obscurity. It's the reason why he's doubled over in pain when he returns from the DeLorean, but the final shot of Biff's disappearing was trashed in the final edit. With that moment still lodged in our minds after numerous sessions with deleted scenes, we're stuck wondering who killed Biff Tannen. Yeah, the suspect list is long, but it makes it all the more interesting to ask. We've talked about this on this show. Uh, Good Cut, Bad Cut from Season 2. Talking about Old Man Biff. Did a uh, special podcast on Old Man Biff with Kasim Gaines. And then played on this show the chapter I wrote about Old Man Biff. We know what happens with that. So go check those out if you haven't. Last one. This is weird. Is Back to the Future's alternate 1985 set in the Watchmen universe? The final question, Back to the Future 2, is a fresh one. And you can blame HBO's hit series based off the Watchmen universe for its inspiration. In 1985A, Marty reads a newspaper, amongst other things, that talks about Richard Nixon seeking a fifth term of office. The last time we saw that sort of history play out, we'd won Vietnam because of Dr. Manhattan. So time travel doesn't feel totally out of place for this hypothetical overlap. This doesn't begin to cover the numerous questions that would still be asked about Back to the Future Part 2, as well as what we could go on to discuss in references to Back to the Future Part 3's conclusion to the series. But for now, we'll stay in the here and now with these major queries outstanding and just wait for answers. Okay. No. (laughs) It's not set in the Watchmen universe. Although the, the Nixon thing is funny. Nixon thing is funny. Because Richard Nixon is still present in the 1980s in the Watchmen movie. I don't know a lot about the Watchmen universe. I didn't see the HBO show. But um, I think that's a happy coincidence at best. So that was Cinema Blend. That was their article about the 10 questions that we still have from Back to the Future Part 2. I think that we answered all of them. Just something that I wanted to do and read to you all prior to the release. Here we are just a few weeks away. Back to the Future's. Uh, or Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told on paperback with an expanded chapter, revised content, beefed up for your reading pleasure. If you were one of the ones who said, you know what, uh, what do we need another Back to the Future book for? I already have Cassine Gaines' book. I have Michael's book. Uh, I have this one. I have uh, 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 Ian Desher's book. I have all these ones. This is a fun one, I promise you. Don't miss out on the paperback version. Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. Released December the 2nd. No, December the 3rd. Excuse me. December the 3rd, right? Hold on. Let's make sure. I'm traveling to LA December the 2nd, so this is why I think it is December 2nd. I should know this. Back from the future. I have to go to Amazon to get answers about my own stuff. This is where we are in the world. December 2nd. Yeah, okay, I was right. December 2nd comes out. Make sure you pre-order right now. Get that pre-order price guarantee and have it delivered to you the day that it arrives in beautiful paperback form. Uh, My first book. I have a second book coming out. You'll hear more about that later. But 
Until then, this is this has been a fun show. We'll be back uh, here soon with another episode of Season 8 of Back to the Future, the podcast. Have some cool guests planned out. Hopefully, we can arrange schedules. Go listen to James Tolkien. Listen to Michael Waldron and anybody else I have coming up on this incredible podcast, the only podcast looking back in time's greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. Until next time, I'm your friend in time, Brent Gilmore, and I will see you in the future. Oh my God, you're my dream though, for sure. You're a slacker, friend. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.